This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Just like a cook, every time you're making stuff, you should be tasting it as you go. I call it getting high on your own supply. Being like, <laughs> is it, is it getting me? If I want to make people cry, is it making me tear up? If I want to make people laugh, do I laugh when I'm thinking of this? That's all you've got. That's your metal detector for creative gold. Welcome to Creative Elements a show where we talk to your favorite creators and learn what it takes to make a living from your art and creativity. I'm your host, Jay Klaus. Let's start the show. Hello, my friend. Welcome back to another episode of Creative Elements. First off, I want to say thank you to so many people who have completed our listener survey for this show. I'm learning so much about what listeners of the show like and want more of. And in just a few days on November 1st, I'm going to be giving away two $200 Amazon gift cards to a couple of people who have completed that survey. So if you haven't already, open your podcasting app right now, go to the show notes and take our listener survey for your chance to win $200. One of the questions on that survey asks what other shows you listen to, and one of the most common responses so far is creative pep talk, which means you just might recognize the sound of this intro. Hey, you're listening to the Creative Pep Talk podcast. We help you build a thriving creative practice. I'm your host, Andy J. Pizza! I love that intro. From the music to the announcement of his name, Andy J. Pizza! It's just fantastic. As I'm sure you know now, Andy J. Pizza is the host of Creative Pep Talk and one of the most requested guests on this show. And for good reason, over the last couple of years, it's become one of my favorite shows as well. Every week, Andy serves up monologues and even some interviews with creative powerhouses like Joseph Gordon-Levitt, Abby Jacobson, and Morgan Harper Nichols. And Andy has built up one heck of a creative career himself. He has the podcast, he's an author, he does quite a bit of public speaking, And lately, he's been making some incredible courses with Skillshare as well. His latest course is called Social Media for Creators, and he's been hosting an awesome free challenge called Peptober for the month of October on Instagram. But before he was a podcaster, Andy was an illustrator for the likes of the New York Times, the Washington Post, Google, YouTube, Nickelodeon, and more. And while he does quite a bit of visual illustration for his clients and each episode of his show, He doesn't think of illustration the way that you might expect. My working definition for the past few years has been writing with pictures. I'm not a super visual person. You know, when I was in college, I really struggled because they kept saying, put yourself into your work. And I was like, what does that mean? And they're like, draw stuff you like. And I was like, you know what I'm really into? Dark matter. I've been like reading about that all the time. Like, only problem is it's invisible. So you can't draw it, except for uh, over the years, I created this project called Invisible Things, where I personify invisible forces, you know, things like dark matter, love, chaos, guts, all these kind of things. And so I figured my way around it. and, And I did so through the lens of illustration is not replicating what you can see. Good illustration to me is telling a story. It's writing with pictures. It's one of the most effective ways to write, in my opinion. Illustration and storytelling is something that I think Andy really excels in through his show, which is more often than not a solo show. Andy lays out how to find creative inspiration, 
how to stop overthinking, how to stop your inner critic, and more. His ability to engage you for an hour with a solo show is really, really impressive. So in this episode, we talk about creative taste and intuition, watching the tape, playing your hits, creative habits, and why he's more focused on storytelling now than ever before. I'd love to hear what you think of this episode. As you listen, just shoot me a message on Twitter or Instagram at jklaus and let me know what you think. But now, let's talk with Andy. This is a topic that I think about all the time, which is, what is great art? Okay, because here's the thing. We're in a time right now where the answer to that question has seemingly been solved. Like you've heard it before. It's put in the work. 10,000 hours make a master, right? We've all heard that before. And we're like, yeah, that sounds about right. You got to practice to get good at it. That, that makes sense. Except for, I always say, your Uncle Kevin. Okay. You're like, I don't have an Uncle Kevin. You're like, no, you do. He's not blood, <laughs> but he's closer than a real uncle. And this guy, he's put in 20,000 hours. He can play Stairway to Heaven backwards on his toes, right? But there's only one problem. Nobody wants to hear it. Nobody wants to hear it, right? Nobody wants to listen to that person tread. So I just kept thinking like the 10,000 hours rule applied to creativity never sat right with me. And part of the reason it didn't sit right with me was because in my high school drawing class, I was not the best at drawing within that class. This is a, you know, this is a school of 2000 people. I'm not even the best there. How can I have a career when I'm competing against you know, millions of people, thousands and thousands of people. And so I think there's got to be another secret sauce to what makes great creative work. And for me, I would define that as taste. Now that word is a polarizing word. Some people really love it. Some people hate it, but ultimately I'm trying to be quite philosophical in the way that I'm trying to imbue new meaning into a word that almost means what I want it to mean. And so when I say taste, I'm just saying there's an intuition that is informed by your creative taste buds. You know, if you're a comedian, you've got a highly sensitive funny bone. If you're a musician, you've got a highly sensitive ear for music. And I just think it's, you know, there's an interesting shift that says actually getting good starts before what you can do and in how deeply you can receive. And so I think for me, as a, as a picture maker, as, a, uh, as an illustrator, as a, as, a, as a speaker performer, I lean into the things that I have a deep sensitivity to because it's kind of like having a, 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 a super tasting palette that you can kind of pull from with your intuition as you're making decisions. Really, every creative act, all it is is a series of decisions. How are you going to make those decisions towards what you, you make them by understanding your definition of good? That's your taste. I love that. I love the pairing of taste with intuition as well, because I feel like intuition is something that nobody talks about as much as they could. Like there's, it, it is such a mystical thing where I almost want people to like try and break down intuition a little bit because I don't know how to talk about it other than like, yeah. you know, <laughs> yeah. and the 10,000 hour rule, for some reason, I literally picture someone just like sitting at a piano for 10,000 hours. And like, that would make you really good at, like you said, playing one Technically, of the songs. Yes. But it doesn't feel, it, it feels like it's going to be repeatable and not necessarily new. Like well, creativity very, feels new very, to me left-brained approach to a very right-brained topic. You know, there's a really great book out called Whole Brain Living by Jill Bolte-Taylor and she, Dr. Jill Bolte-Taylor, I believe, uh, she had like the first viral TED Talk. She lost all access to her left brain for a period of time and she was like all in the right brain. And it was this transcendent experience and she learned so much from it and, and she put it in her first, first book, but she felt like she hadn't nailed it. That's why she made this other book, Whole Brain Living. And I think the 10,000 hours, the skill thing, it's a very left brain way of thinking about what's good in creative work. But the fact of the matter is we all know our favorite musicians, our, our favorite artists 
are not technically the best at what they do. Very rarely. That Venn diagram is very small of people that happen to be extremely technically proficient and have good enough taste to show restraint in their choices, right? Mm. So I, you know, taste is the way I think about it. If you think about your, like you could think about it, like your physical tongue, your palate, and you're using, you're just like a cook. Every time you're making stuff, you should be tasting it as you go. I call it getting high on your own supply. Being like, (laughs) is it, is it getting me? If I want to make people cry, is it making me tear up? If I want to make people laugh, do I laugh when I'm thinking of this? That's all you've got. That's your metal detector for creative gold. And that's kind of how I think about it. And it's at least a good justification of why I can be a professional (laughs) illustrator and not be the best at drawing. This is partially also about my obsession with having a target, having your taste is your definition of good. So what is your definition of good? For illustrators, if I asked them that, and myself included, you know, 10 years ago, I wouldn't have been able to answer that whatsoever. And I would say, okay, what's a good comedian? Everybody knows the answer. Making people, people laugh. Yeah, I should have let you just answer. I, re- I really wanted you to. I was like, I got it. I know the answer. He knows that one. We, all, we know that, right? I actually think that's one of the essential keys of why they're creative masters. Because they can do target practice. They know what they're going in there to hit. Illustrators don't. They're not the only ones either. Lots of creators. We don't even know what, what are we trying to achieve? And we get distracted by being technically, you know, in virtuoistic. That's not a word, but it worked. I put it in there. That's what we get distracted by that. And I actually think for me, great illustration illuminates a story in the same way that acting does to a script. Like that's, that's, it makes you feel it. It makes it come alive. And so for me, illustration is really, it's, it's just one tool in my tool belt to do the same thing that I'm always doing, which is storytelling. And the, and the thing behind that, you know, my working definition of storytelling is moving truth from your head to your heart. You know, not, it's easy for me to be like, Hey, you know, you have everything you need. And you're like, okay, that sounds like it's maybe right. Okay. That's a truth in your head. But if I said, yeah, just like Dorothy, she had the ruby red slippers the whole time. Scarecrow had the brain the whole time. You have everything you need. All of a sudden you're like, oh, it's warm in my chest because of the story. It made you not just know it cognitively, but know it, like really know it. That's what I'm, that's my obsession. And I'm just, I feel like I'm just get, scratching the surface. I'm just starting to learn how to do that. Somebody who loves something, as you do, you've been putting 10,000 hours towards something, right? And part of me thinks like that's probably sharpening your taste. But is, oh, there, yeah. a, is there a limit, I wonder, where you become too overly analytical that you, you let all of the, the sensors in your mind stop you from making the right decisions or the, the courageous or vulnerable decisions? Yeah, I do think that that's true. I think there's a, you know, I, there's two pieces that come to mind with that. One is I actually think it's extremely valuable to make part of your practice writing on stage like comedians do. You know, one of the things that I find to be a big bummer is that, you know, for as far as I can tell the past hundred years, like um, there was a philosopher. I listen to a lot of philosophy podcasts. I didn't actually take any philosophy classes in college because I, I only took graphic design and illustration in college, but I've gotten into it since. And there's a, there's a philosopher, Walter Benjamin, who's known for kind of being like the only true art is the art that is made for the artist alone. And, you know, you would make art if you were on a desert island, you know, that's the only true artist. And I think that, look, I think that's part of the equation. I really do. And I hate, you know, who am I, this guy in Ohio, like, you know, uh, arguing with a guy from like the Frankfurt school, like the, you know, whatever. But I just feel like it's half of the equation because the truth is if you go get lost on a desert island you know, the studies say in that kind of isolation, you actually lose sense of yourself. So there is no self to express. There's not like we are in a, inextricably linked to each other. And for me, part of what gets you out of that 
overthinking, overanalyzing, too much taste testing before you get it out the door. It's just get it out the door while you're doing it. That's one of the things that I learned. I'm a big student of comedy. I'm just a huge fan, primarily because of their storytelling skills, which is really my jam. And uh, I'm so fascinated by their willingness to create with the audience now it is a, it's a, it's a narrative. There's a timeline to it. Like it's, they don't ever get on stage and be like, you tell me what's funny. They don't do that. That's not, that's ridiculous. They start in their hotel room, noting down things from their taste where they're like, I think this is something, but they don't know for sure. And they could sit there in their room and be like, is it something? Is it not something? No, they go into the club, they try it out and they're like, okay, I, oh, I, I see what I, I didn't hit it on this note. This is how I could tighten this up. This thing has to go. And, and I'm a huge believer in just p- putting crap out there into the world, putting your bad stuff out. Look, like I'm a huge fan of the comedian, Tim Robinson of the show. Um, I think you should leave. And like one of my favorite skits on that thing was already on Saturday Night Live. Guess what? Nobody cares. Nobody knows. No, that's and the people like, who do know wouldn't care. The people that do know are me, super fan, who I'm like, that's awesome. I love right. the evolution. They actually of care that. more in a good way. I love it. <laughs> and so the first thing you can do to kind of, and I think it's brilliant bringing this up because I have this podcast and we're always talking about, there's an ebb and flow of like, when you're in the game, you're not thinking, you're playing. When you're out of the game, I think it's good to watch the tapes. I think it's good. And, and so the, the podcast is watching the tapes. It's let's talk about it. Let's analyze it. But if you, if that's all you do, you're overthinking and it's going to get in the way. And one of the ways to get out of that is, is to just keep pushing it out there, test stuff out, let your audience into the creative process. And I told you there was two things. I have no idea what the second one is, but it'll come back around. <laughs> this is low key. Why I love your work so much, because you're pulling in these things that might not be like your typical quote unquote creative advice where you're like, listen to comedy, watch the game tape. Like you're pulling in some, some sports ball into this. Um, <laughs> but like, that's the, the, the sharpening and the layered approach that you take to taste making in your unmaking the myth series on Skillshare. You talked about David Sedaris and I didn't know yeah. this about him, but when he goes on book tours, you said he actually tours the book he's currently writing to get audience reactions to make it better. Another comedian, but not a stand-up comedian, is David Sedaris. He's an author. He writes his books and he goes on a book tour. But unlike other authors, he doesn't read the book that he's touring. He reads the book that he's writing next. And he actually reads it with a pen in hand, crossing off what doesn't land. That's how he makes books that make you laugh out loud because he knows they'll make you laugh out loud because he's already witnessed it. He's already written it with you. Six to eight, did you say? And that blew my mind because even on this show, I've had James Clear on the show and he talked about how lonely and isolating and hard it was writing Atomic Habits because he had no feedback loop like he previously had with his newsletter, for example. Uh, I love that idea of watching the tape, practicing on stage, this is so important to everybody. Yeah, I, you know, it's a big, it's a huge part of my practice. And, you know, just like you said, the, the people that will notice that you're, you know, revisiting past material or reworking it, those are the people that are so invested that they're like, oh, this is awesome. I, like we went and saw Dave Chappelle out in the cornfield a few times last year in quarantine and, and watching that material become skits when he was on Saturday Night Live was the most satisfying thing in the world to a fan. Wow. Love that. Yeah. Love seeing early versions of stuff like that. It's like, it's like music. I kind of think that a lot of creativity and art comes back to like what's happened in music before and music, you start with a demo and then you have the album and then people who love the album eventually find the demo and they're like, oh, this is so cool to like hear what it was first and what it is now. After a quick break, Andy and I dig into the magic of a creative practice and creative habits. And later, we'll talk about how to double down on some of your most successful work. So stick around, and we'll be right back. If you know me, you know how much I believe in memberships. My membership is the core of my business, and earning an income directly from your audience is one of the most sustainable ways for you to become a professional creator too. So I want to tell you about today's sponsor, Uscreen. Uscreen is a beautiful all-in-one platform that helps content creators earn a living from their videos by unlocking predictable recurring revenue. 
You can host private live streams for your members, build an on-demand catalog of premium content, and Uscreen gives you a community hub to interact with your members too. They can access your community from their mobile phone, so your membership is right there in their pocket. With a Uscreen account, you get video hosting, an out-of-the-box website, full payment and subscription management, and plenty of third-party integrations too. And Uscreen makes it easy to get set up. You get access to powerful website themes that are fully brandable with no coding skills required. Uscreen will even provide a dedicated success manager for you. Just about anyone that wants to make money from their content can do it with Uscreen. It's perfect for coaches, authors, influencers, and entrepreneurs in just about any niche. Right now, Uscreen is used by creators in fitness, education, news, kids entertainment, and more. That includes Yoga with Adrian and Creator Now, just to name a couple. Uscreen is the platform for building a video membership site that is great for generating a sustainable income for professional creators. If you create video content for your audience, I highly recommend checking it out. If you're interested in learning more about Uscreen, visit uscreen.link slash j. That's U-S-C-R-E-E-N dot link slash j and let them know that I sent you. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Last year, my wife and I started talking about her joining the business full time. This is a huge decision, not just for the business, but for our marriage. My wife, being the very smart and thoughtful woman that she is, suggested that we proactively sign up for therapy as a couple to help us communicate better before we started working together. It really helped us have better language to describe how we're feeling and listen to one another, which generally lowers the intensity of any conversation. Now, I had never been in therapy before, but here's something that I didn't expect. It didn't just help our dialogue, but it helped my inner monologue too. The way I understand my own experience has changed based on the tools that I got from therapy. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, so it's convenient, it fits your schedule, and you can be in the comfort of your own home. Just fill out a short questionnaire and you'll get matched with a licensed therapist. They even make it easy to switch therapists if it doesn't feel like a fit. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash creator today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash creator. Welcome back to my conversation with Andy J. Pizza! Before the break, Andy and I were talking about the role of taste and intuition in creative work. And we agreed that a way to develop your taste and intuition is through creating consistently and building up a body of work. But one of the biggest threats to consistently creating a body of work is simply overthinking. I'm very happy that you brought up the overthinking element because that's something that has become kind of like a rallying cry for me for creatives. One of the things I've Speaking of James Clear, one of the things I've been pushing on them hardcore is making creativity a habit. And there's this idea of, I don't know where this comes from, but uh, for me, overthinking is when you're thinking more than doing. That's when it's out of whack. I actually think that in America, we have an anti-intellectualism, an anti-thinking culture that is super jacked up, not helpful to anybody, anti-watching the tapes, especially in the creative world. Like I think that we, anytime I'm like weighing something up and I like present it to someone in my life, the, the amount of times that they're like, just don't overthink it. I'm like, no, I'm just thinking it. That's all. I'm just thinking it. So I'm a big fan of thinking, but I do think it can, it can easily flip over when the, that scale tips out of balance and you're thinking way more than you're making. And so the, I don't know if this was my second point, but I'll throw it in there. My second point is make sure you have a creative habit. Make sure that, and, and the reason why is, and again, I don't know if this is James Clear or Twyla Tharp who wrote a book called The Creative Habit, but for me, the essential part of a creative habit is that habits are things you do without thinking. And so that already eliminates a huge amount of thinking that you don't need to be doing. Should I make something today? Should I not make something today? You should do it. That It's your habit. Just keep doing that. And so that's another thing that has helped me not get overly stuck in the taste testing and just kind of going as it comes. I wanted to dig deeper into Andy's creative habits specifically. Some artists have a daily routine. Others have a weekly routine. So I asked Andy if there were any specific rules or guidelines that he has for his own creative practice. Absolutely. I have a, and, and it evolves over time, but right now, the majority, I, 
I talk about this more than I should, but um, I take a bath every day. Now, we might have to get into, I also take showers because I run after the bath and we might you have run to run after into, the bath. Look, can you can, just hold on? Give me one. <laughs> let me say one thing in defense. <laughs> I have ADHD. I actually got a really intensive uh, diagnosis recently with a special specialist psychologist. And I found out I'm super lucky. I got all three types of ADHD actually got to catch, catch them all. all. That's <laughs> I got the Bulbasaur, the Charm, the, the Charmeleon, and the Squirtle of ADHD, and um, I do a lot of like self-medicating through the through uh, habits. You know, one of them is, and it's funny because I believe my mom has undiagnosed ADHD. We're not super in touch, but um, she would take baths every day, and she did other things like she'd you know she smoked. She was a heavy smoker. I don't smoke but I used to, and it was, the nicotine actually is very similar structurally to what they prescribe. And so for me, I've, I've really leaned into the things that put me at my best mentally. Baths are one of them because they raise your dopamine levels, which is a huge problem for ADHD. And so I do all of my writing in the bath. Now, part of that (laughs) is a bundling thing, which is another ADHD hack, which is, you know, I learned this as a teenager For the longest time, I really hated, I'm sure this is relevant to creative people. I'm sure there's some, there's some way to apply this, but it was so essential to me. So I got to share it. I hated mowing the lawn and with ADHD, the main thing is the things that you hate to do, the, the things that are boring to you are nearly impossible to do, especially consistently. So I had to mow the grass every week and I just freaking hated it to the point where When I was like 13, I would like fake lawn mowing injuries. (laughs) What are those? Are those ankle, knee? No, just like, whoa, I fell down the hill. And it was very dangerous. (laughs) Oh my God. I look back at myself and I'm like, good Lord. That was so embarrassingly dishonest. And, but I, you know, I'm in therapy. I see it as a protection. I was, I was protecting myself. I was trying to, trying to survive. I was trying to figure out how do I get through this thing? And so eventually I found bundling mowing the grass with listening to music. And I would make, I'd make my own little mixtape off the radio, listen to like bone thugs and harmony, ghetto superstar. That, that was the time when I was doing this. And I, in all the way until I discovered podcasts, I'm on a huge tangent. You can, can I'm here for it. Do whatever you want with this, but um, all the way until I discovered podcasts, thank God for my wife's sake, I would listen to that music and sing it at the top of my lungs while I was mowing all the way till I was like 23 probably. And my neighbors would be like, what the hell is going on with this guy? But it's how I got through it. It was bundling. Bundling is an activity. I didn't make that up. It's when you put something you don't want to do with something you do want to do. Writing is a hard thing to, to get yourself to sit down and do. And so all of my writing for the podcast happens in the hour, sometimes two hours, every single morning in the bath on my phone. It's the only way I can get myself to do it. And so there's stuff like that. Baths, running. I've just, I was running every other day, like a, around three miles. I just started the past month or so trying to do five days a week, six days a week, because it's so, it's medicine for the ADHD it's brain. It's like meditative. That's what running is for me too. I can't really just sit down and meditate, but like running yeah. is that. And so those are the kind of habits. And then I have, those are like personal habits that all impact my creativity. Then there's stuff like the podcast has been, you know, when I talk about the creative habits, the first thing I say is for me, and I think this is a James Clear thing. The most essential thing when starting a new habit is only have one goal with it. And that is to make it a habit. So back in 20. 11, my first really big creative habit was make a new character every weekday for a year and put it on Tumblr. And I did that. And ever since then, I've had a creative habit. And the cool thing is over time, they've become really complex habits. So that habit was one character on Tumblr every weekday for a year. That was it. Very simple. The podcast is actually a complex system of habits. By now, I'm doing a new illustration every week. I'm, po- I'm doing copy every week. I'm posting it to like seven or eight platforms every week. I'm, you know, I'm writing its own special Instagram. I'm recording just 
a very complex set of habits. All of those though have been not only beneficial just to the practice in terms of all kinds of things, but ultimately in just getting better. Like I feel like I am so much better of an illustrator than I was seven years ago for having to do these episode art pieces every single week. I was just thinking about this this weekend because I was talking to a friend of mine. He was talking about his younger brother who had just left his job. He just keeps going to a a new job and then quitting after a couple months because he has like this entrepreneurial itch, but he doesn't know how to scratch it. And I was thinking, how lucky am I that I have committed to doing these weekly creative publishing of things, podcasts, newsletters, whatever. So that every week I have a forcing function to get that incremental 1% better and not question like, what am I going to do with all this energy? Like I have an outlet. 100%. There's so much wasted creative energy, overthinking. Should I do it? Should I not? What should I do? Like the creative habit takes all of the thinking, all of that thinking off the table. Now, you know, and you see this too with people like Steve Jobs who wore the same thing every day. That's a way of eliminating that willpower. You have a certain amount of willpower every day. You have a certain amount of creativity to spend every day. Do you want to spend it on what you're wearing? Do you? I think you want to spend it on your creative practice. And so I think actually, can you eliminate almost like, and even I see people, and I did this, trying to invent new markets, trying to invent new ways of making money. And I'm like, you are not Mark Zuckerberg. That's going to be impossible. It's so hard and it's so unpredictable to create a whole new way of making a living. But creatives want to be creative about everything, not realizing you're spending your creative energy. And so if you, you give yourself a constraint, commit for a period of time, show up consistently, then evaluate and pivot. But that, that is... That's essential for me. One of the messages that you've shared that I think about a lot and come back to a lot is playing your hits. Can you talk a little bit about that and how important that is? Yeah, I mean, okay. So uh, it's really the way that I would apply it is social media is the primary way that I think about it, but I actually have something else to tag on here. We We just launched a social media class on Skillshare that I'm super proud of. One of the things that one of the big principles for social media that I'm trying to get people to embrace is that you are not a robot. You know, you, you are not a content generating machine. Okay. Like if you try to post new artwork all the time, every day, several times a week, you will burn out. It's not realistic. And, and in fact, the people that are crushing it on social media aren't doing that. At least two thirds of my posts are posting old pieces of work with saying new something about it. You know, I'm, I'm saying something new that's relevant to me right now. And I'm commenting on something I did in the past. And, and to the people, like we said earlier, to the people that are super fans, they're like, oh, I love that piece. They're like, what's he posting? What? Is it like, no, that doesn't happen. They, but the people that have never seen it, it's new to them. Now, on top of that, I just like to add one extra layer, which is, um, I saw Austin Kleon share on Twitter about this quote from Alfred Hitchcock, which is style is just self plagiarism. And I was like, that's exactly what I'm talking about. What we call style is when Wes Anderson goes into a room and he's like, you remember how we shot it last time? I liked how that was. Let's just do it. By the way, what he's doing is he's saving his creativity for what matters. He's saving the creativity for that particular performance. He, you know, he's, and so that's what style is. And I saw one of my favorite examples of this, of playing your hits is Jim Henson. I read his biography, which is fantastic. And um, one of the things that a lot of people don't know is by the time the Muppet show happened, which by the way, if you weren't alive then, which I wasn't, I didn't, I've always been a crazy Jim Henson fan, but I didn't know the Muppet show was like in that time, the thing all over the world. It was huge. It was hugely successful. Like I didn't know that either. Yeah. It was a massive hit. And so for the people that discovered Jim Henson through the Muppets, it must've felt like, you know, Beyonce dropping lemonade where you're like, what the heck is going, whoa, where did this come from? But the fact of the matter is those characters were cherry picked from commercials and specials that they had done for years. That cast of characters didn't they didn't sit in a room and be like, all right, we should have a dog. It's Ralph. No, that came from like a dog food commercial. Like Cookie Mo- Monster came from a cereal commercial. They always, and, and they always reserve the rights to reuse these things. And so what they ended up doing was 
over time, plagiarizing themselves, building this, you know, this whole vast ecosystem and creative kind of vernacular that they could work within. And that's part of like not being afraid to self-plagiarize. As soon as you see this, you will see that like 99 out of 100 of your favorite artists, this is all they're doing. All you have to, I think like for me, I'm like, you might make every 10th thing you make, I think has like a little bit of magic in it. So you make 10 things in a year, you're going to have one of those. You make 50, you're going to have 10 of those. If I'm doing the math, is that? No, five. What, where's the math? <laughs> I'm not a mathematician. I actually have like a number, a fear of numbers. But That's why we have post-production. I would have just, just done the math for you. <laughs> Throw it in there. <laughs> anyway, you'll have more, okay? You make more stuff, you'll have more. And, and, and what you can do with that is you can actually, over time, snowball that together into a practice that is hard to wrap your head around the level of creativity that you're seeing there. And so, and it also, the great part of that is it takes the pressure off every single thing you do. This is, reminds you of Christoph Neiman has this amazing, uh, I think it's a 99 U talk where he's like a, a creative professional does not make great work consistently. The goal is to make good work. If you can make good work consistently, you can be a pro. You don't control the greatness. Every once in a while, you're going to have a great thing you made. And it, it's just not completely in your hands. And when you get those great things, you roll them into the next things. I love this. I had two moments like this recently. I'm going to share them both because I yeah. think listeners of the show will like them. And I think you're probably also even aware of them already because you strike me as someone who's going to like both these things. Ted Lasso. Yeah. Maybe one of the best things that's happened to me in the last 12 months, right? <laughs> yeah. uh, Jason Sudeikis made that character as a commercial for Premier League on ESPN. And it was a very different take on who Ted Lasso is today. It was like aggressive and almost like angry, right? It was a Which joke. Is Guys, all I'm looking for is 60% effort, 4,000% of the time. That's it, skip. Skip like little girls. Go, not a, not a care in the world. I'm lucky to be doing this for a living. Everybody's do the robot. You gotta ride a few players a little bit harder than some of the other players. Blondie, you are killing me. John, what do you got on there pants-wise? What is those? Three quarters. And I get those in the women's section, John! Pick up the ball, pick up the ball with your hands. That is a violation. It was a, yeah. it was a complete joke. It was just like he was the butt of the joke. And a lot of people don't even know that exists. Yeah. The second thing that I realized recently, Bo Burnham's new special, Inside, which I love. I imagine you yes. uh, have seen, if not yep. also love. Yep. The song Welcome to the Internet, that's now kind of going viral in a new way on TikTok. Bo had a song called Welcome to YouTube from 12 years ago at a YouTube event. And Katy Perry is like there on the piano saying like, this is Bo Burnham, like his first year after making it on YouTube. Okay, I totally can't wait for this next performer. He's funny, he's filthy, and he's gotten over 20 million views on his YouTube, and he's only 18 years old. Thank God you're 18 at least. <laughs> he's here to play his world premiere of his new song, Welcome to YouTube. Come on, everybody, make some noise for Bo Burnham! Thank you, Mrs. Perry. And there's like some elements that he pulled from that that are just 12 years old, 12 years old. Yes. I just think we have all of these weird ideas that are unrealistic expectations and the people that go on to do really creatively great things, they actually tell you all this. But there's just this, you know, mythology that we, wanna, we want to make them other in a different way, you know, and make them like, oh, creative geniuses. And I just think those are massively the exception, may not even exist really. And really all these practices are actually quite manageable. I also think that your work informs your own taste, obviously. And sometimes Definitely. you plagiarize yourself and you don't even realize it because like it just worked and you internalized it and you have a sense that this will work again, not knowing that, oh, I know that because I did it before and it worked. <laughs> There's a lot of, I mean, I honestly think a lot of my favorite artists and most artists I would say, or a lot of artists that get successful do so completely intuitively. So they don't even, they're not even thinking about it as self-plagiarism. It's people like me that, you know, need all this extra, <laughs> extra, you know, tips and tricks to help me ground myself and see things a little bit more from a aerial view. Um, but yeah, your favorite artist probably does all this stuff intuitively. 
I think about that a lot too, because one of my favorite podcasts is Dissect. And Cole Kushner breaks down like music. He'll break down an entire album, you know, song by song. And the way he breaks this down, and it's really an analysis of any great work of art, you think like, did they really think that when they're putting in that? Or are we projecting that yeah. intention onto the work? And the answer is probably like kind of both. Like it probably happened with some form of intuition, but I wish there was a way of knowing like how much of that was intuition, how much of that was planned. That's why I love listening to artists talk about their work because they'll share like how much of it's planned or, you know, gloss over things that weren't. And it doesn't make it less great. It just means like, wow, your intuition is very strong. That, you know, I completely agree. And I think that one thing that I go back to over and over and over again is the idea of dualism. This idea that our brain wants to be, wants to approach everything in a black and white binary way. That's just, it's just a very easy way for us to hold things. It's either, either this or it's that. And I think we went through this huge period of time where we kind of thought because it's bad to ref the game and play it at the same time, because it's bad to think while you're playing, then you shouldn't think at all. Whereas really it's not either or, it's both and. It's do this at those times and do, it's just like uh, Todd Henry and Austin Kleon and sister Karita Kent. There's a bunch of creative, you know, teachers that have talked about this idea that creativity is really seasonal. It's where, you know, you're not always harvesting. You're not always planting. You're not, you're, you're doing this sometimes and then you're doing that other times. And there's a, there's a season for all those things. I'm actually hoping that as a culture, we get more into artists feeling comfortable dissecting their stuff. And part of the reason why is I've been on this huge binge of, I'm obsessed with storytelling. One of my favorite storytelling teachers is Brian McDonald. Um, he has a podcast called You Are a Storyteller. It's it's on our podcast network. And um, he talks about how there's sugar in medicine. Like stories are sugar to deliver medicine. He calls it survival information. Now it doesn't just mean physical survival. It might be emotional, spiritual, psychological survival, but that's why historically we've told stories to each other because it's a great way to, it's a sugary way to pass on the medicine. But the fact of the matter is, I think now we're just eating sugar all the time with our stories. You know, they did a study with kids and said, you know, they told them a Clifford the Big Red Dog story about the, the dog pack is excluding this three-legged dog. And by the end, they learned to include them. And so after the story, if you ask the kids, you know, what's the lesson? Their, their takeaway is don't exclude three-legged dogs. And you're like, okay, kind of, but Close. it's actually don't exclude people that are different or anybody that's different. And once you tell them though, once you give them the medicine, they get it. The story has power. And actually I have a suspicion that this is also true for adults that we're, there are so many great lessons in Pixar movies, even Marvel movies, and, and all these stories we tell. And I feel like creatives have been made to fear their artist statement, fear showing behind the curtain. And it's a really huge bummer to me because I think we're, you know, we're getting unhealthy in our consumption, just consuming the sugar all the time. When we come back, Andy and I talk about his transition from visual illustrator to storyteller and his advice for when to stop or continue new personal projects right after this. This episode is sponsored by Podcast Movement. For the past decade, Podcast Movement has organized the world's largest gathering of podcasters featuring thousands of attendees, hundreds of breakout sessions, panels and workshops, plus the largest trade show in podcasting. Podcast Movement helps podcasters of all experience levels create, grow, and profit from their show. It's suitable for beginners, but you'll also have the opportunity to meet some of the biggest names in the industry. I've been to several Podcast Movement events, and not only is the programming incredible, but the culture and vibe are incredible too. It attracts thoughtful, empathetic, and collaborative people, which makes sense when you think about the medium of podcasting. Podcast Movement hosts two events per year. The first just wrapped up, but their flagship conference is happening August 19th through the 22nd in Washington, D.C. Attendees have the freedom to choose their own adventure across several different stages throughout the four-day event, not to mention dozens of amazing networking events, parties, and the expo hall floor. 
Tracks include podcast creation, video and live streaming, industry professional, plus several stages of curated programming from some of the top companies in podcasting. It's truly a unique event, and if you are a podcaster, I cannot recommend it enough. Right now, tickets are available at super duper early bird pricing. And as a Creator Science listener, you can save $50 on top of that by visiting podcastmovement.com slash science. That's podcastmovement.com slash science. This episode is brought to you by sax.com. At sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch, find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. Hey, welcome back. Even though a lot of listeners of this show also listen to Creative Pep Talk, our two shows are very different. In a lot of ways, I think the way that Andy produces his show is harder than what I do here. Most episodes of Creative Pep Talk are monologues that I know require quite a bit of planning and scripting, but also storytelling. Andy will often pull out quotes, stories, or analogies to illustrate his point, and sometimes he'll reference the same ideas in different places. The idea of an Uncle Kevin who can shred guitar that Andy brought up earlier in this episode is an example that he shares in his new video series with Skillshare. So I asked Andy if he has a deep mental catalog of these stories and analogies, or if he keeps an actual record or like a folder of ideas that resonate with people. I do. I I have, you know, thousands and thousands of notes on my phone. But part of it is, you know, I think for me, the whole writing on stage self-plagiarism thing is almost using art to become the person that I want to be. This is one of the reasons I love Q&A is that Q&A at the end of a talk is as fun to me as the actual talk because every question will peak some like folder in the back catalog of my brain that I've already written a story about, that I've already come up with an analogy or a metaphor or, or, or paired with a personal story that I experienced and I can just grab it. And I think that it's, for me, the artist journey is just inextricably linked to the personal journey. You know, you'll hear this all the time. Like there's a huge pattern of how creative breakthrough was a result of personal breakthrough. And so for me, I'm always, I think they're just, it's hopefully, this sounds really cheesy, but I really do mean it. Hopefully it's someone that I'm becoming. Like I'm, it's just becoming part of the fabric of who I am. And and I do, obviously I do take a lot of notes. I do catalog them. If I think of a story that happened to me, like something that happened to me, I will put, I have a list of those of like, I don't know what to do with that yet, but I want to do something with that. And the best part about all this, there's two people that there's two types of people maybe that might be listening to this. I went straight binary, black and white dualism again, just watch how your brain does that. But I'm thinking there's people that are like, yeah, cool. Okay. That makes sense. Then there's people like me 10 years ago listening to this thinking, I could never do that. I Like thousands of notes, huge catalog, seven years of podcasting and speaking and doing all that. No, it's literally just a snowball. Like all of that stuff is just little, little creative habits compounding. It reminds me of that Einstein quote of the eighth wonder of the world is compounding interest. I'm actually... Pretty certain he said that. I did the, the homework Somebody on did. the quote. It's and yeah, It's good. But that, that it compounds with interest, that those creative habits. And so that's really the truth is that they all are somewhere. But really, it just all that needs to happen is one word will just perk up a particular piece from, you know, that back catalog. I love that we've gotten to this topic because I didn't think we we're going to make it here, but I really wanted to talk about it. You know, you mentioned art being something of a way to express like the person that you're becoming or a a means of becoming the person you want to become. And I feel like a lot of creators today, they hear this advice that you've got to be wildly consistent and specific to break through. And they want to fight against that because how can I pigeonhole myself as the person who does this one thing? And I've watched over your career, you know, Maybe going from illustrator of the podcast to podcaster who illustrates to now storyteller, public speaker. Talk to me about those transitions and how intentional they were and how scary or not scary they were. 
The first thing that comes to mind is uh, a book called The Artist's Journey um, by Stephen Pressfield, who's mostly known for The War of Art. I always have to think before I say that, so I don't say it the wrong way around. Um, <laughs> but, uh, don't want, but Don't want Sun Tzu coming after you for I know, exactly. Um, but uh, he, he talks about, he has this theory that I'd actually, it's what, you know, I feel like when you stumble upon truth, hopefully, if it's really true, someone's already thought it right? Like and that's, that should be encouraging that you're on to something. And I'd had this idea. And then I stumbled upon him saying that really the creative journey is kind of two big parts. There's the hero's journey. And then there's the creative journey. The hero's journey is finding the elixir. And then once you have the elixir, now it's time to be an artist with that, giving your gift away. And what that looks like, I think the hero's journey still looks like trying to be an artist, try, trying to Figure out what your thing is, you know, con convincing yourself for periods of time that you are this thing, you know, digging into it. I, I, I was thinking the other day, I was having a conversation and I was saying, you know, I bet that when Matt Damon wrote Goodwill Hunting, that he had to convince himself that he was a writer. Like he, he had to be like, I'm a writer. Because you have to do that. You have to have that delusion and that, you know, grit in the period of time. But the truth is I went through so many iterations before I actually found what I think is at least the first fruits of like what my real art is, which is somewhere, something in kind of a, uh, if, if I will be so bold, philosophical approach to storytelling. And, you know, before that, I had explored book cover illustration, editorial, advertising, even tried to make rap music. You know, I was doing all kinds of crazy stuff. Can we find that um, and put that in the podcast? I'm sure, yeah, it's somewhere. I tried so many things with the full, you know, really convincing myself like this is the thing, working at it, wrestling with it. Uh, and, and then eventually stumbling upon like, no, I think this is the real key. And actually I was already, before I started my podcast, I was already a full-time illustrator. I'd already had worked with Sony and, you know, I, a, a whole bunch of good ones that I don't want to just name drop here, but I had a good, I had a good career. I had a, a middle-class career as an illustrator by the time I discovered storytelling, really. I did a talk. You might relate to this. You're married, right? Is that, is that true? Engaged. Soon Engaged. to be. Engaged. Congrats. Uh, and maybe you understand this, but you know, sometimes when I was in those phases of like trying new things, I would feel like, I think there's some creative magic here. And I would show my wife and sometimes she'd be like, yeah, I think you're on some, some and, but lots of times you're like, yeah, I don't know if that's really your thing. Uh, and then I did this talk uh, just a tiny little community talk. And I just felt like, what was that? That was totally different. And my wife was there, luckily, because I got off stage and I was like, was that different? And she's like, yeah, that was something different. And I was, and I was already an illustrator, like I said. And so for a few years, I actually felt like I was having an identity crisis. So I started the podcast and um, that was a whole story in itself. Um, because what I wanted to do was just quit illustration and go be a, a performer speaker, right? Ooh. And I didn't do that. There's a whole bunch of cool stuff we could talk about that. But I decided instead to try to fuse these things, mainly because I already had two children. And I thought, I don't think I can just quit my whole path right now. And so I, I fused them together. And But I spent a good two years feeling like, uh, having an identity crisis. And I'm like, I don't think I'm an illustrator. I think I'm whatever this is of like telling metaphors, telling stories, giving analogies. And then one time I'm watching a talk uh, and I'm just eating it up. And the speaker was like, okay, I want to give you an example. I want to give you a story to help illuminate this. Here's my illustration. And I was like, 
they're the same thing. And there's just this, you know, connective tissue between all of it. And so now, you know, medium is just not that much of a uh, stumbling block for me. It's, they're all part, even my talks, there's always illustrative uh, elements, whether it's slides or if it's video that's in animated and integrated to me, it all, I think it kind of goes back to the classic Simon Sinek thing of starting with why. I think the further you dig in, you're going to get past the, the, the veneer, the skin of this thing, past the meat to the bone of what is this thing. And I think for me, I do think it's like moving truth from the head to the heart. And I think the truth even beyond that of what I want to communicate is life is worth saying yes to. And there are so much evidence to the contrary, like a ton every day, but you know, those experiences in life and you know, those creative things that you consume that you remind you of those things and they keep you going. There's a posture in life, a yes or a no. You can, when you wake up, you're either resisting it or you're leaning into it. And so for me, even though, you know, the design industry, uh, illustration industry, Every industry wants to pigeonhole you. They want to draw these hard lines. They want to be like, if you don't do this, you're not good enough. If you don't, you know, whatever it is. At some point I was just like, look, I don't know. It's all this stuff, but I'm doing the same thing every single time. It's all the same to me. So somebody listening to this who feels like maybe something's working right now. I've got a hit that I can play and I'm just getting started, but I feel like I'm kind of pulled in this other direction. Like, how do you know when to say yes to that direction in today's like competitive, creative climate? I'll give you kind of, um, you know, again, Pat, there's a, there's a theme going on here, this non-dualistic theme, because what you're going to hear is two pieces of advice that are kind of diametrically opposed. Uh, it's either grit. The only way to succeed is doing the same thing over and over and over and sticking to it. Or, fail fast, never stop pivoting, right? So which one is it? The answer, of course, again, is both. <laughs> yes. And here's how I practice that because it's easy to be like, it's both. Okay, that doesn't help anybody. What, what, how I practice that, that is my religious practice of personal projects. The thing about a personal project that weaves those things together so well is that the grit side is saying, I'm making a commitment. So when I started the podcast, I said, I'm making a hundred episodes. I'm making a hundred. And, and I wasn't, you know, previous projects were smaller bets than that. But this is one where I was like, I know this is something. This is close to what I want to do. And I know I'm going to need to do a hundred episodes before I know whether I should press on or pivot. Right now I had done past projects that were like, I want to do new book covers for books from the public domain. Uh, that we're going to screen print. And I thought, I'm going to do four of those. Okay. So the way earlier one, but it was, that was a good mix of, because when you do one, you don't have enough data. That's not an experiment. You can't, that won't hold up against peer review. You're like, look, you need more, you need more data to know. And the cool thing is I love that example of, um, I called that project a novel view and I did new book covers for books from the public domain, illustrated new book covers for like Wizard of Oz and Moby Dick and a few others. It took me that long. This is how hard it is to come upon self-knowledge. Everybody already knows most of this about you, but you figuring it out, that is another thing completely. It requires a lot of grit, a lot of self-expression, but also self-excavation, which is how I think about art. Um, and, the, and, and the thing is, it took me I think five of those posters for someone to be like on Twitter, oh, I love this Moby Dick poster. How did you like the book? And I was like, oh man, I didn't read the book. I don't even really, <laughs> I don't really read fiction. That's not really my jam. And I thought, of course, this is not my path. I'm not a ravenous fiction. I'm never going to do this. But it took me five posters putting them out into the world to see the most obvious thing in the world, right? So. That's the way I think about how do you know, oh, you want to make a pivot? Okay, finish up the one you already committed to and then create a new bet and say, hey, I need to do five of these, 10 of these, 100 of these to get a sense of that. And then at the end of that, at the end of that 100 episodes, you can say, 
uh, that was the worst thing ever. Or you can say, I'm gonna make 230 more of those like I did. It was such a fun time recording this episode with Andy. One of the conversations I've been looking forward to having on this show for a very long time. And I love that we touch on the role of taste and intuition with your work. These things are spoken about in such mystical terms, but I agree with Andy that they are some of the most important qualities to develop on your creative journey. I think your creative diet is a lot like your nutritional diet. You are what you eat. Your taste and intuition are informed and shaped by the work that you spend time consuming. So be thoughtful about where you find your inspiration and get outside of your own bubble. Andy mentioned learning from comedians, and I guarantee that has helped him stand out as an illustrator. I highly recommend Andy's video series, Unmaking the Myth, on YouTube and his new course with Skillshare. Links to both are in the show notes. You can subscribe to Creative Pep Talk right here in your favorite podcast player just by searching for Creative Pep Talk or visit creativepeptalk.com. And hey, while I have you here, do you want to be featured on a future episode of this show? I love hearing listener questions and we'll be taking some of them to pull into this show. Just visit creativeelements.fm and leave me a voicemail or check out the link in the show notes. Thanks to Andy for being on the show. Thank you to Emily Klaus for making the artwork for this episode. Thanks to Nathan Todhunter for mixing the show and Brian Skeel for creating our music. If you like this episode, you can tweet at jklaus and let me know. And if you really want to say thank you, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening and I'll talk to you next week. Universe.